Pastor Len Andrews from the Wild Ministries with today's study, continuing in the book of Genesis, chapter 47, Fruitfulness. We continue the series in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 47. Genesis chapter 47 and verse 27 is where we want to start. Genesis chapter 47 and verse 27, that is where we want to start. Genesis chapter 47 and 27, hear the word of the Lord. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. Verse 29. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. Stop right there. Now there is so much that I want to get within this uh, scriptures that we are reading. But before we do, let's pray. Father, thank you for another beautiful night that you've given us. A time where we gather together in your name to come and hear your word. And as we hear your word tonight, Father, open our hearts and minds to your truth. Rain down upon us your divine wisdom, understanding, and knowledge that we may learn everything in your great book, learn how to apply it to our life, and to remember it always. Father, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth, and your word is life. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. As we look tonight... Let's do a brief recap of what we already know. We come to this point now, we are getting to the end of the book of Genesis. And we have come so far from Genesis chapter 1, talking about creation all the way almost to Genesis chapter 50, which marks the end of Genesis. And as we have come, we now find ourselves looking at Joseph and Jacob reuniting. Well, what do we know up to this point? We know that as we have come, we have seen Joseph, we have seen his life. We have seen that his life is a representation of the things that we face as believers. We see that before we came to know Christ, we had to go through many situations and circumstances in order for God to bring us where we are right now. And in Joseph's life, just like the life of the believer, one thing is promised to us who believe, and that is, we will be persecuted. Don't believe when people tell you that when you become a Christian, everything has become roses, everything is perfect, everything is good. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that Jesus says that if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Jesus promised to the believer that at times there will be nowhere to lay your head. Jesus promised at times that marriages would be broken up between an unbeliever and a believer. Jesus promised times where there'd be trials, turbulations, temptations, all these things would come upon the believer. That's exactly what happened with Joseph. Joseph's life 
as you can see, was one where he, when he began, he was in the comfort of his own home. He was protected by his dad, and he was his dad's favorite. His dad loved him so much that he made him a coat of many colors that stood out between all of his brothers as him being the one who was favored by his dad. Well, what happened? It triggered a lot of anger and animosity and hatred towards uh, Joseph to the point where they wanted to literally kill him. The Bible says that they were going to do just that. But one of them says, let's not kill him, let's sell him, and let's make a profit off of selling him. That's exactly what they do. They sell him to the Ishmaelites that were coming through, and they sold him. And what happened? Well, they took him to Egypt, and they sold him there to Potiphar. Potiphar, who was the captain of the guard, he went and took him in, and he went and made him a servant in his household. But there was something about this young man that it just stood out. He was one who was just fantastic in all of his management duties. He knew exactly what to do, and he knew exactly how to act, to conduct himself. And because of that, he raised him up. Because there was one thing that the scripture said, and it said it actually a few times, and that was, the Lord was with Joseph. And everything he did, he prospered. Everything he put his hands to prospered. Everything that he spoke, it seems like it prospered because God was with him. What happened? Well, as you can testify to probably in your own life, that whenever we do good and things are going in the right way, the enemy always tries to come and tries to intervene, doesn't he? And he tries to break it up. He tries to stop it. That's exactly what happened. The Bible says after a period of time, Potiphar's wife then raises up. She sees Joseph, and now she has a longing eye for him. So much so that she says to him on a few occasions, come and lie with me. But Joseph, being a young man of integrity, being one who was all for God, he wouldn't have anything to do with it. And the Bible says that he literally told her no, pushed her away. And in one instance, the Bible says that she literally grabs him by his tunic and says, lie with me. And he says no, and literally runs out of the house and he leaves the tunic in her hand and he runs out naked. And she says to her husband when he gets home, as well as all the servants that are in her household, look, see, he tried to rape me, and when I cried out, he ran, and he left this tunic in my hand. The Bible says he was falsely accused. What happened? Well, he was thrown into the pit. He was thrown into the dungeon, and he was put in prison. The Bible says that even in prison, God was with him, and everything that he did prospered. In his daily duties, probably cleaning up the prison, in all that he was doing, there was something about this young man that just caught the eye of the jailer, the one who was in charge. And the Bible says he was exalted to the scribe of the prison, meaning he was in charge of the prisoners that were there. And so he was exalted to a position even in the dungeon in prison. And the Bible says that here he was, time and time and time again, where we would think it would work out well for this young man, all of a sudden it seems like one thing after another after another happens until one day there was two prisoners that he was put in charge of. They came in. And one of them was the chief butler, the other was the chief baker. And the Bible says that Pharaoh was so angry with them that he put him in the dungeon also. And we come to find out that there was some sort of attempt on Pharaoh's life to poison him. The reason being the butler was the one who went and poured his wine. And that could have been poisoned, as well as the chief baker who baked his goods. It could have poisoned the food for Pharaoh. Well, we come to find out that indeed, they have two dreams. 
Both of them in the same night. And that next morning they come and they're looking downcast. They're looking brokenhearted. And Joseph comes in and he says, why do you look downcast? And they said, we have both had two dreams. And no one's able to interpret them for us. And Joseph says, do not interpretations belong to God. Tell me your dreams. And they told him. And he was able to interpret them. And we come to find out that indeed the baker was the one who was conspiring to kill Pharaoh. So what happened? Well, because he interpreted the dreams, he said to the chief butler who was going to be restored to his position, when you get there, when you get restored back to your position, mention me to Pharaoh. Because I'm not deserving of prison. As a matter of fact, I'm falsely accused and I don't deserve to be here. But the Bible says that when he was restored to his position, he forgot Joseph. And so Joseph spent two more years in prison. You would have thought that it would have worked out for him because he went through trial after trial after trial. But then one day, Pharaoh has a few dreams. And he has dreams that literally shake him. And he wakes up and he calls all the magicians, the soothsayers, the astrologers, all those that are able to interpret omens and everybody. He brings them all in and he tells them the dream. Nobody's able to interpret. It was then that the chief butler said, ah, I remember now my faults. When you were angry with me and the chief baker, you threw us in prison and there was this young Hebrew in there. And he, we both had a dream and he was able to interpret the dream. And the Bible says that Pharaoh called him, summoned him. He gave the dream to Joseph. And as Joseph came to him, he says, I heard that it was in you that you were able to interpret dreams. And Joseph, always pointing to God, he said, no, it's not in me. He said, God will give Pharaoh an answer to peace. And so he tells him the dreams and he's able to interpret them. And the Bible says that there was a famine coming. And Joseph said that you need to store up the grain in all these years that you have where there's going to be plenty because a seven-year famine is coming. You need to prepare. Pharaoh looks around and he says, can we find anybody else with whom the Spirit of God is in? He says, I'm going to exalt you now to the right hand. And you're going to be second in charge only to me. Whenever you go by, people are going to bow down at your feet. It's exactly what happened. Why did all that happen? Why was that allowed to happen to Joseph? It was all in God's perfect, perfect plan. You see, what we figured out was this, is that everything that you go through in your life, whether it's bad, whether it's good, whether it's evil, whether it's wicked, whatever it might be, everything is working together for the good of the believer. You have to remember that. You might say, well, you don't know, Pastor. i got a sickness in my body right now. Well, listen, it all works together for the good. Eventually, he came out of that dungeon. And it was all in God's timing. It was by God's will. It was by God's timing. And when he trusted himself to the Lord, God brought him out at the right time and to the right place. And this is one thing that we know. Had Joseph never ever been sold into slavery by his brothers. He never ever would have made it into Egypt. Had he never ever been standing in front of Pharaoh, and how did he get to Pharaoh? By being in the dungeon. How did he get into the dungeon? By being falsely accused. How did he become falsely accused? By being in Potiphar's house. 
How did he get in Potiphar's house? Because he was sold into slavery. How did he get sold into slavery? Because his brothers put him there and sold him. You see, all those instances ended up working out good, not just for Joseph, but for all of his family. Because when the famine came, there wasn't enough to eat in all the land. God had a plan. And God had a purpose. And I will tell you this today. God has a plan and a purpose for everything you go through. And so now, we come to Genesis chapter 47. Jacob and Joseph are now reunited. And now, all of those, Jacob and all of his family, they all come down to Egypt. And they're going to live with Joseph. Verse 27 says this, So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen. And they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. You see that? But I like the way the New Living Translation brings it out because this is what it says. It says, Meanwhile, the people of Israel settled in the region of Goshen in Egypt. There they acquired property and they were fruitful and their population grew rapidly. I like that because fruitful would be the proper translation. And when you look at this, what does it point to? Well, it points to Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning. It says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. You see, at the very beginning, God gave them the command to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, to have dominion. Another word for dominion in the Hebrew is authority. He gave them authority over every living thing that was upon the planet earth. God gave them that authority. But he told them to be fruitful and multiply. Man and wife in a marriage that God ordains that God has approval of is what he is talking about here. People often ask the question, well, can it be man and man and woman and woman? According to the word of God, it cannot be. Because the command is to be fruitful and multiply. Two men together cannot do that. Two women together cannot do that. It is wrong in the eyes of God. And some might say, well, what if I don't believe that? What if I have family members that are gay that believe in that? Well, listen, I do too, and I love them. But I love them enough to tell them the truth of the Word of God. And people might say, well, what if I don't agree with that? Very easy. Change your way of thinking. Don't think your way. Think according to God's way. Because one day everybody will stand before God and everybody will be accountable for what they believe. Everyone. As much as you might not like that, as much as you might not like the thought of judgment, guess what? Every single one of us has a day that is appointed where men will be judged according to the word of God. And so he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So let's talk a little bit about this. We are to be fruitful. God has called us to be fruitful. In your life, what does your fruit look like? 
Now, you might ask me the question right up front, okay, what does fruit mean? What does fruitfulness mean? Well, we, we understand the term that we just read, but also in the Bible, fruit is something that is to come forth from a believer, one who walks with God. And you can find that in Galatians chapter 5. It talks about the fruit of the Spirit, right? He goes on to say, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, and faithfulness, and self-control, right? He lists the fruit, and he's very certain about that. So fruit should come forth from every single one of us. What does your fruit look like? What is your attitude when you speak to people? What is the type of fruit that is coming forth? Because fruit can be seen in a few different ways. Let me give you the basic level of fruit. The Bible says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when you speak, what is the fruit that is coming forth from your lips? That is a type of fruit. The Bible says that by their fruit, you will know them. Your actions also speak of the type of fruit you have. So when we ask the question, what does your fruit look like? Is it withered? Does it look like this? Is it withered? Is it dead? Because the Bible talks about two types of fruit. It talks about bad fruit, and it talks about good fruit. What is yours display in your life? Is it bad, bad, bad? Or is it good, good, good? Are you fruitful? When people see you, are they happy to see you? Do you give people encouraging words? Do you build them up? Do you love them? Do you show them hospitality? Do you show them kindness? Do you show them gentleness? Do you love them? Can you even, because you know that God forgave you of all the sins and the wrong that you did in your past, can you look past somebody else's and allow love to cover a multitude of sins? What does your fruit look like? Are you fruitful? Are you bearing a lot of fruit? That is the question. Because here it says that Jacob... And all of his family, Joseph, all of them were fruitful. They had a lot. They were very, very fruitful. That's a question I want to ponder for a moment as we read and understand what the Scriptures say. So what are Scriptures on fruit? I'm going to go through a couple of them. You might want to jot them down and just read over them later. And this kind of helps us to understand what fruit is. Proverbs chapter 12, 12 says this. The wicked desires the plunder of evil men, but the root of the righteous yields fruit. Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. Wasn't that very, very apparent in Joseph's life and in Jacob's life? Even though there was at that time a great big drought, a famine in the land, they still did not worry because God provided for their need. Did he not? Matthew 3.10 says this, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and it's thrown into the fire. Matthew 7, even so, every good tree bears good fruit, 
but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew 12. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. Matthew 13. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit, and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Luke 6. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. John 15, pay attention to this. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. I want you to remember that because whenever we try to actively move on our own and we do it outside of the will of God and we are not abiding in the Lord, which means abide, that word there in the Greek literally means to remain in, hold close to. When you look at that, God is telling us that we need to abide in Him, hold close to Him, trust in Him, have faith in Him, depend on Him, rely on Him. Because he says from apart from me, we can do what? We can do absolutely nothing apart from the Lord. So we need to remember that. Anything that is done on our own end, according to Isaiah, it is known as filthy rags. It is not good in the sight of God. It is our righteousness. And just as Adam and Eve tried to cover their own sin, and they tried to do it with fig leaves, they were trying to cover up their own unrighteousness. God would never ever allow them to do that. And the Bible says He took animal skins and He covered them with those skins. In other words, God sacrificed an animal for their sin and He clothed them with those animals. It was not their own righteousness that was accepted, but God as He sacrificed that animal and covered them, He covered them with His righteousness and it was acceptable in the sight of God. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. Romans 7, therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. So let us ask the question then, if we are in the Lord and we are the Lord's and fruit just is not producing, what can hinder our fruit from coming forth. Now what I want to do is I want to go to where Christ would address this. And I'm very, very simply going to briefly summarize what the Scripture says. The reason being is we have to go to the book of Revelation to do that, to understand that. So what I want to do is summarize. I don't want to give you comprehensive answers because you guys know this, that after the book of Genesis in about a month, three weeks to a month, we are going to be in the book of Revelation studying that book from front to back. So I don't want to go in depth. I just want to give you a summary answer. What can hinder the fruit of the believer? The first one is found in Revelation chapter 2 verses 4 through 5. Christ, at the very beginning of each of these letters to the churches, 
He tells them that he sees their good works. He sees what they have done. And he gives them commendation of what they have done. But I want to point to what he says they have done wrong. Okay, I want you to see that in order to understand what can hinder the fruit in the life of a believer. So Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. We come to the church of Ephesus. And this is the church that left their first love. Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, hear the word of the Lord. Nevertheless, this is Christ talking. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. This church was guilty of leaving their first love. Whenever you leave your first love, that means that that very thing that was the center of your life, you have walked away from it. In the Old Testament, it would be the equivalent of God saying, you have committed adultery, you have forsaken me, you have abandoned me, and you no longer are with me. Remember, he told them that time and time and time again. They were chasing after other gods and false idols. And so, as the Old Testament saints or people had left God, in the church also, we can very easily leave our first love. If I asked you to question, what is number one in your life? You would probably say, my wife or my children. That would be very commendable. But nobody should be before God. Do you understand that? Nobody should be before God. Otherwise, you make them to be your idol or your God. If your husband is number one in your life, you need to change it. If your wife is number one in your life, you need to change it. If you're not married and your kids are number one, you need to change it. God should come first in your life. This is why the scripture says when Jesus is talking, he says, if any man does not hate his father, his mother, his husband, his wife, his sister, his brother, they're not worthy of me. We are to love Christ so much that it looks like hatred in comparison. We should love them that much. But the people here had left their first love. Christ was no longer the center of their life. And I believe that it happens very, very easily. You know why? Because he gives us the answer to this. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. A lot of times, a lot of these things can be avoided if we just do one thing. And that is remember. Remember what God has done for us. If you ever, ever forget what God has done, you have a tendency of leaving that first love. But if you always remember what God has done, how he has forgiven you, how he has taken you from your past and he has brought you now to where you are at, and you always are remembering what God has done, how he has provided, how he has kept you healthy, how he has touched your family, how he has saved your life on more than one occasion. If you remember all those things, you will stick close to God because you cannot help but make him number one and be thankful for everything he's done. If we would just remember, we would never ever fall from leaving our first love. The second one is found in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. What hinders the fruit of a believer, of a Christian? Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, this is the church of Pergamos. And the church of Pergamos was guilty, and they were guilty of one thing, and that was compromise. Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, hear the word of the Lord. Jesus is talking again. But I have a few things against you, because you have there 
those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Stop right there. This was a church that compromised, it seems, a little at a time. Now, what does this mean? When we look at it, what does it mean? Well, it says here, he says, this is what I have against you and this is why. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. So what does all this mean? Well, in order to understand it, you need to go back to the Old Testament, to Numbers chapter 23. And in that, you see who Balak and who Balaam is. Balak was a king, and he had sought out a prophet, one who would curse Israel. Because Israel was prominent, Israel was strong, and this king knew that it was only a matter of time before Israel came to war against them. So what happened? So Balak, this king, he goes to a man by the name of Balaam, who was a prophet, he was a pagan prophet, and he said, curse Israel for me. And Balaam, wanting the large sum of money that he was going to give him, he said, okay. But God had other plans. God said, I don't want you to curse them. I've already blessed them. And how many of you know that when God blesses something or someone, you cannot change that? People might say that Christians are not blessed, but oh yeah, we are. Yes, we are. We are blessed beyond measure. And there ain't nobody that can change that. If we do wrong, there's only one person that can change it, and who's that? God, and nobody else can do that. But the Bible says here, that there was a doctrine that Balaam taught Balak. Because Balak said, curse them for me. Balaam said, I'm trying, but God's not letting me. I can't do it. You understand that? I can't do it. I'm trying, but I can't. And so Balak says, well, you're going to lose that on the money. He says, oh no. He says, I'm going to tell you what you should do. And this is what he told him. He said, what you got to do is you got to take a few of your women and take them over to the army. And all these women that come, you tell them, oh, we're going to have a great time together. But before we do, we're going to eat and we're going to pray to our gods. And then we could have a great time, all that you want. That's exactly what he did. Balak sent the women over and it became a stumbling block to all of Israel, to the men. They allowed themselves to compromise. In your life, ask yourself the question, do I compromise in my life? Those things that you have done before, you shouldn't be doing them at all anymore. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, all old things pass away, and behold, everything becomes new. Where in your life is there compromise? You see, we've got to be solid in our belief in Christ. Do you find yourself 
doing the same things you did when you were unsaved? Do you find yourself thinking the same way that you thought when you were unsaved? Do you find yourself listening to the same things that you listened to when you were unsaved? Do you find yourself watching things that were wicked and vile that you watched when you were old and when you did not know Christ? If that's the case, then you're compromising. You see, compromise doesn't just happen with a big chop of the axe. It happens over a period of time. It happens when you are lethargic in your walk with the Lord. It happens when you're not reading your word. It happens when you don't pray. It happens when you are not running for the Lord fully and committed your life to Him. It happens when you allow other people to influence your life that are wrong. Compromise happens in so many different ways. And I would say it happens over a period of time. The enemy has learned through all human history how every single one of us are. The Bible actually declares that the heart is deceivingly wicked above all things. Who could know it? And he knows it. And he knows how to tempt us. But this church allowed compromise to come in. What is God speaking to you this evening? Do you compromise in your life in any way, shape, or form? Does anything take you or hinder your walk with the Lord? If there is, and you can be sure that compromise is in your life. The next church is found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 20. The church of Thyatira. And this was a corrupt church. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20 says this, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things that are sacrificed to idols. The Bible talks about how we as a church need to get all the leaving out. As a church, we should all come together and we should all tackle problems. And when we see something, let the elders, the pastors know. All of us should be working together as a body when we see things that are not right according to the Word of God. But what happened with this church here is that they allowed a woman, Jezebel, to come in. I'm telling you something right now. In the parable of the weeds in Matthew chapter 13, the wheats and the tares, you will see that the Bible says this, that while men were sleeping, the enemy came and he sowed seed in. Into where? Into the church. When we are not paying attention, when we are not keeping our eyes focused, when our attention is elsewhere and it's not on the ministry or our brethren or our sisters, do you know that this false teacher, Jezebel, could come in? Well, what about doctrines? What about this doctrine? If it's not in the Word of God, it's not the doctrine of God. Teaching can come in that could be corrupt. And if you don't know what the Word of God says, you could be very easily tripped up in your walk with the Lord because you're going to be thinking things are okay when they're really not. And so this church became corrupt. It allowed a lot of false teachings in. The church became plagued with teachings and people were beginning to walk in sexual immorality and things were flooding into the church to where it seems as though the church was corrupt before God. How about you? Do you allow yourself to be flooded with false teaching? We have to know our word. 
you don't know your word, how are you going to survive when somebody asks you, is this right or is this wrong? How are you going to survive when somebody asks you the question, let's say it's your own child, and they say, is this okay? And you don't know how to answer them. What's going to happen? We're going to allow ourselves to teach false doctrine. And if there's one thing in the Bible that the Bible says God condemns, it's false teachers, false prophets, and all those who would lead His people astray. We cannot become a corrupt church. This is why we go to great lengths to teach the Word of God and the Word of God only. The next church is Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, the church of Sardis. And this here is the dead church. Christ says this to them I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you're dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. These are people that are walking about. The church that was walking about and they were, looked like they were active. Looked at their calendar and they had all these things going. But yet inside the church, the church was really, really dead. They made all the necessary improvements. They had beautiful glass stained windows. Everything. And it was beautiful and it was elegant. They looked like they were alive and everybody was saying, wow, we got to go to that church. Do you see? They're having music and, and that music is a type of gospel that, it's, that is kind of like the 70s music and the 60s music that we grew up with. It's so wonderful and it's beautiful. Let's go there. They had a name that they were alive, but really they were dead. We don't want to be people who think that we're alive in the Lord, but really we are dead spiritually, walking around dead. We must be alive for the Lord, doing His will and His work. He says in verse 2, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. They at least had something admirable in them, but it was something very little. And I'm telling you this right now. What is little that remains? The Bible talks about faith as being as small as a mustard seed. And all they had to do was activate their faith and trust in God, believe in God, know God, and not trust in themselves and their programs, but Him, Christ, trust in Him alone. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. They had a name that they were alive, but they were really dead. What a sad, sad example of a church. They thought they were alive, but really they're dead. Think about all those false teachers. And you see their churches, and you hear about them. We all hear about them because they're on TV, right? And we hear that they have within their own church something like 20,000 people that are coming. And even around the globe and around the world, they have uh, somewhat of a following of about a million plus people. And everybody says, wow, their church is so alive and active. But when we hear the doctrine that comes out of there, we say, man, that church is dead. God saw it. The Bible says that Jesus, when he was looking at the churches, it says his eyes were like a flame of fire. 
Nothing escaped the gaze of our Lord. Our Lord saw through everything where the people thought that they could be very hypocritical and just act the part and say, glory, hallelujah, we love the Lord. God saw through them and He saw exactly what was in their heart. His eyes were like a flame of fire that saw everything. And as He's addressing these churches, He's telling them, you think you're alive, but really you're dead. The next church is found in Revelation 3, 15 and 16, the church of Laodicea. And this is known as the lukewarm church. Jesus said this to them, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Christ tries, well I wouldn't say he tries, but Christ here is saying that this church was one that it wasn't even cold, meaning that they, they just outright denied Christ. And it wasn't hot, meaning they were on fire for the Lord. This church was kind of in between. They wouldn't say that this was wrong. They wouldn't say that that was wrong. They wouldn't admit that this is a sin, that that's a sin. They would not come and stand up for Christ. They were kind of in the middle, kind of straddling that fence, trying to walk the line, thinking that they could please both man and God at the same time. God says to them, basically, you make me sick, and I'm going to reject you. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. So we look at these different churches, and we see now, bear in mind that there are all these types of churches during this time when we are going to read in Revelation, we're going to see that in chapters 2, chapters 3, there are seven churches. Those seven churches were a representation of the churches during John's time. All of these churches represented a different type of church that you would see in the body of Christ. There would be some that are dead, some that compromised, some that were lukewarm, some that were corrupt, some that were, that were dead. And then you also have the good one that was the persecuted church, which was a faithful church. And then you have the church of Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love. But you would find all those types of churches during that time. But let me also say this too, that those churches are also a representation of every type of believer you will find in the church today. You will find that you will find there are some corrupt people that are in the church. You will find that there is some people that think they're alive, but God says you're really dead. You're going to find those who are compromising in their walk with the Lord. You're going to find those that are faithful and good for the Lord. And you're going to find those who are going through times of persecution and suffering, but they're holding on to the Lord through it all. And the reason why I pointed these ones out, these certain ones, is we asked the question, what can hinder your fruits? And I hope you get a better understanding of how your fruit can be hindered in your life. Are you compromising? Are you dead? And you're no longer active. You're not following the Lord and walking in His ways, obeying His commandments, and doing all that He requires. Are you corrupt? Doing, seeing, watching things that you shouldn't, and living ungodly. You see, all of those churches you will find in the church today as far as people. We cannot deny this. 
we really got to turn our eyes inward and look within ourselves. What in my life do I really need to change? What in my life do I need to repent of? What in my life do I need to do in order to get back to my first love? Because all of that hinders our fruit. When you don't love Christ with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, how can you love anybody else? When you don't love Christ to the fullest, how can you forgive? You see, all of these things will hinder our lives with the Lord and it will hinder our lives with our fellow believers and the people we come into contact with every single day. Jesus said, so let your light shine among men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let's go on. Verse 28 of Genesis 37. Now, there's a few things that I just want to point out, and then I'm going to end here for tonight, and then we'll pick it up again next week. Verse 28 says this, And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. What a long life, wasn't it? Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. Well, we know this. From the time that Joseph saw Jacob, we know that from that time that he thought he was dead up until he reunited with him, there was 22 years that had passed. 22 years and Joseph had been reunited with his uh, father, Jacob. And so they lived in the land of Egypt 17 more years. Eventually the famine ended. And we know that it became then, after that, God allowed the harvest to come forth. God allowed the rain to come forth. God allowed there to be abundance once again. And so we see that he lived in Egypt another 17 years. And then it gives us the length of his life. It says was 147 years. I just want to reiterate what we talked about last week. And that was this. Do you know that when you walk with the Lord and you love God, and you honor God, God says this to us, with long life, I will satisfy you. Do you know that? With a long life, God will satisfy you. Jacob lived 147 years. Joseph was going to live to be a little over 110. But they both had a long life on this earth. We pointed out last week in talking about Jacob and his heart reviving when he heard that Joseph was alive, that it said that his spirit revived within him. We pointed out that Caleb, who was one of the 12 spies that were sent out by Moses to spy out the land of Canaan when the children of Israel were coming into the good land. And it says that there was two who came back with a good report and two, 10 that came back with a negative report, an evil report that they could not take the land, even if God was with them. But the two that came back with a good report and said, let us go over, let us take this land, there was two. There was Joshua and there was Caleb. The Bible says that when all of those doubters doubted God as well as all the people, God said, every single one of you that rejected me and didn't think that I was strong enough to take you into the good land, every single one of you who's 20 years and older, all of you are going to die in the wilderness. That's exactly what happened. And he said, everyone who is underneath that age, every single one of them will enter into the good land. All of you will die except for two people. And he said, Joshua and Caleb, because they believed in me, they will 
enter into the good land. And the Bible says that that exactly happened. They entered into the good land. And you know what happened? When Caleb was about ready to get his inheritance in the good land, the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, the Bible says that Caleb went to Joshua and he says, I want that hill there. I'm paraphrasing this here. He said, Joshua, I want that hill there. That hill right there, where there is that house, that palace up top there, that's mine. I want it. Joshua said, can you do it? He said, when we went to spy out the land, I was 40 years old. He says, now I'm 85 years old. And he says, you know what? God has made me a man of war. And just as I was strong and had great eyesight back then, he says, I still have that same exact strength to this very day. Give me that hill. I'm going to take it. It's mine. You know what happened? He went up there. And during that time, the Bible says that there was giants that lived up there. You know what Caleb did? Him and his sons went up there and they took that land. Why? Because God was with them. They wiped out all the giants that were there. He trusted God. But he still had his strength that never diminished. Then how about Moses? The Bible says Moses lived to 125 years old. And it says that when he died on that mountain, it says this, his eyesight never diminished and his strength never left him. And as I told you before, as we get older, and guess what? Everybody's going to get there. Everybody will get older. That we saw that the Bible, according to the Bible, you know how to have a long life on this earth? Be active for the Lord. Because you will find that those who do not have activity in their life for God or have a purpose or have meaning, those are the ones that have a tendency of not living long on this earth. But every single one that has purpose and meaning in their life and they are doing something active live to a long life according to the Word of God. The length of Jacob's life was 147 years. God blessed him with a long life. Verse 29. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt. Verse 30 and 31. But let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And then he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. Stop right there. Now I'm going to end with these verses. But verse 29 says, If I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. What does that mean to place the hand under the thigh? Why was that so important? Well, back then during that time, that was the way that they went and, and, and um, sealed an oath. Kind of like today. Like when you want to seal a deal, what do you do? You shake hands, right? Or maybe when you make that promise or you make that deal with your child, what do you do? You do that pinky promise, right? Well, back then, that was their way of sealing a covenant or being agreeable on terms. And so he tells him, put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. And please do not bury me in Egypt. Now, I want you to pay attention to that because this is where I'm going to end here today. 
When the time drew near that Israel must die, he says this to him, Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And then he said, Swear to me, and he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. Do you know that Jacob, during the last part of his life, and during his life, especially this part of his life, do you know what his focus was? His focus, we might think because it just said it in the scriptures that we read previously, that his mind and his focus might have been on a lot of the possessions that he had gained being in Egypt for those 17 plus years. We might have read that he acquired this many animals. Because really, if you look in the Bible, you will see that that's a pattern. That, that it shows what a man has. Like Abraham, when he went to Egypt and he came back, it told of all of his possessions. And then we read in the book of Job, we read of all of his possessions. And when he ended, we read of all of his possessions he ended up with. So this is not uncommon. But here, Jacob, his thought was not about what he had. His thought was not about what he owned. His thought was not of all he had possessed. His thought was not about his sons at that time. His thought was not about his grandchildren. Do you know what his thought was in his life? His thought was toward his burial and the end of his life. So much so that he says, I want you to deal truly and kindly with me. And I want you to take me out of Egypt. I want to rest with my fathers. And I want to be where they're at. So you say, well, what does that mean? I'll tell you what that means. Many of you here today, I would probably say, uh, probably a good portion of you, if you are, if you are, you are people who are meticulous or you are people who are uh, very... Um, orientated to being uh, schedule prone. And you like to schedule things. You like to plan things. You like to plan ahead. And when you ever set your vacation, you know the, the days that you're going to be gone, right? You know how much you're going to spend for a hotel room. If you're not going to drive, you know how much you're going to spend for a plane ticket for each person. You know how much money it's going to cost roundabout for your food. If you're going to an amusement park, you know how much it's going to cost for each one of your children as well as you and your spouse to get in. You plan for the rental car. You know when you're going to have to take it back. You know when you're going to pick it up. You think about what days and what you're going to do during those days of your vacation. And so you meticulously plan every step of the way. But do you know what amazes me? is that today, people are not planning for their death. And they don't know Christ. And as Christians, we're not telling them about the Lord. We're not telling them how to plan for their death. Because I'll be honest with you, many that woke up today, they did not make it through the whole day. And yet we plan very meticulously in all of our lives. But we don't tell people how to plan for the life to come. 
That should be conviction inside of every single one of us to let people know about the Lord. Because a good majority of them are dying and going straight to hell. What have you done to tell those that you love about the Lord and how to plan ahead? What have you done to tell your coworkers? What have you done to tell those who you come into contact with? Can't be silent about it. You can't be silent about it. People are dying every single day. And they need to hear. When he swore to Israel, the Bible says Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. Another translation says he bowed down at the head of his bed and he worshipped. He worshipped God. As we're going to see, that's some of the last breaths that he takes. Next week we'll see it. He planned meticulously for his death. What did he do when he made him that promise? It says he worshipped. There's a man right there that never forgot what God did for him. There was a man there who never left his first love. But he stayed close to him. He trusted him. He had faith in him. And to the very end, he loved him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight. As your word has gone out, Father, and conviction sets in the hearts of many here tonight, as well as myself. Father, help us to act upon this word. Help us to make it real in our lives. That when given the opportunity, Father, that we declare your message, your word, your gospel to your people. There's so many out there that are dying every single day, Father. And I just pray for an utterance for your people to speak boldly. Speak forth your gospel. Heavenly Father, help us. Because some of your people, Lord, they're very outgoing and they're spoken. But there's others, Lord, that just have a hard time opening their mouth. But you have said in your word that every single one of us is being conformed into the image of your dear Son. Let us speak boldly as he spoke boldly. Help us to have mouths that speak your truth, your word, your gospel to a dying generation. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. If you are interested in visiting the Wild Ministries, we are located at 5700 South Country Club Way, Tempe, Arizona 85283. Our Sunday service begins at 10 a.m. and ends at 12 noon. Our Bible study services are on Wednesdays beginning at 7.30 p.m. to 9 p.m. For families with children, the Wild Ministries has classes available for children 6 months to 17 years old. If you have any questions, you can contact the senior pastor, Lane Andrews, at 602 4602195 or the associate pastor Ryan Reed at 602-434-4073. Come drink at the well. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. Goodbye and God bless.